Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Whoa, hey, here I am, and thank you so much. It be the last day of March, the year 2021, a consequential year to say the least. Yesterday, this program was filled with frivolity, I must say, my favorite kind of show. However, <laughs> life is not just a bowl of hysterical cherries. Now, we got to take a look at some of the news that's been happening and which I have been assiduously avoiding. So I, I'm just going to take a romp, if you don't mind. Uh, feel free to interrupt at any point uh, through some of the big news <clears throat> of the day. Uh, yesterday, my sister asked if I was watching the Chauvin trial, Chauvin trial and I said, um, no, <clears throat> I just couldn't bear it. And of course, I found myself watching <laughs> Chauvin trial yesterday afternoon which shows how sort of easily swayed I am. You plant an idea in my head and off I go. And I, I'm glad I did. I, I, it's, it's hard to watch, but we watched a man die and uh, watching to see that he achieves a measure of justice seems to be a, a reasonable thing to do. I don't think you have to watch the whole thing. I mean, some of it, God, these lawyers, I guess this is what they're taught. They just, they, it, it's so slow. It's so slow. And what did you then have for lunch? Was it good? Do you normally have that for lunch? I mean, it was just, it's just stuff that you think, oh, right already. But anyway, I, um, I, my son happened to stop by while I was so engaged, and he said, you're watching that? I said, well, why wouldn't I? And he said, well, it's a foregone conclusion. He'll get off. And this is spoken with the certainty of a, of a young man who has seen cop after cop who killed a black person get off. I mean, generally, they don't even go to trial. But when they do, they get off. And I said, I don't think so this time. I just don't think so. And he looked at me like I was, you know, some kind of naive uh, old fart. But today, I happened to see a uh, rundown of who the jury is um, in more detail than I have seen. And um, I think they're going to convict him. I'm a little stunned that the jury seems so, well, I'll just tell you what they say about some of the jurors. The first one they talk about is a 20-year-old, somebody who's in his 20s. He's a white guy, works as a chemist, and he... It says here he has strong views that the criminal justice system is biased against minorities. That guy's on the jury. Then there's a woman of the same age who identifies as mixed race 
And uh, she has an uncle who is a police officer. There's a white man in his 30s who has a friend in the police department. But this guy said that he thinks that if George Floyd had been under the influence of drugs, that shouldn't be a factor in the case. And I suspect that's going to be what the defense is aiming to try to do. Um, another juror is a black man in his 30s who is an immigrant. Um, he works in information technology. And he told his wife that that could have been me. Another jury, a white, juror, a white woman in her 50s, healthcare executive, and she said since his death, she has been awakened to her white privilege. Um, <clears throat> then there's a black guy in his 30s who writes poems. And this is odd. He said he did not think that Chauvin intended to kill Floyd, but he wondered why the other three officers did not intervene. And then we have a white woman in her 50s. Um, she said she couldn't watch the video ever because it so disturbed her. There's a black man in his 40s who lives in the suburbs. There's a woman in her 40s, uh, multiracial uh, corporate consultant. There's a white woman in her 50s, a nurse. There's a black woman in her 60s, a grandmother. And when she was asked in jury selection about the Black Lives Matter movement, she said, I'm black and my life matters. And then the last three jurors, a white woman in her 40s who works in the insurance industry, who said before being chosen, she did, Mr. Floyd did not deserve to die and that it certainly appeared the officer used excessive force. Uh, then a white woman in her 50s who volunteers at homeless shelters, and finally a white woman in her 20s who is a social worker. Now, I'm sorry, guys. You tell me that that jury is not going to convict. Uh, I mean, it's not as if we don't. We all witnessed it. And believe me, the testimony yesterday was just wrenching and damning. Okay, so that's all I have to say on on that. I'm dealing with the front page here. Another horrific racist um, attack. And this is the latest video of an elderly Asian woman being beaten up. <clears throat> if you haven't seen that video, I don't recommend it. It is absolutely horrific. The violence that visits her as she is on her way to church. 65-year-old Filipino woman. And this guy approaches her and just knocks her to the ground and then kicks her and kicks her. And, and these are kicks as she lies on the ground. The surveillance video is coming from inside a luxury apartment building. Uh, it happened in front of that building. And the camera shows 
at one point, at least two people in the building uh, who at one point see what is happening and who do nothing. And in fact, when the guy, the assaulter goes away and the woman's lying there on the sidewalk, a guy actually shuts the door. Apparently those were security workers in that building. They have been suspended. This is not humanity at its best. There has been an arrest made, as you may know, um, and the guy arrested is a homeless man who 20 years ago stabbed his mother to death and was just let out of jail on parole two years ago. How do you stab your mom to death and you get out on, I don't, I don't, I don't understand anything anymore. I don't understand anything. And the guy arrested um, and seen in the video is a black man. Uh, you know, racism is a broad term. And often when we're thinking of racism in this country, we're thinking not, not surprisingly, of white people's bigotry against black people. But black people are capable of bigotry. And um, I think there has been uh, some, uh, if you look at the data, there has been uh, black uh, resentment of the Asian uh, people, immigrants, coming into their neighborhoods, opening stores. Um, and I, you know, racism, one way or the other, coming or going, it is such a part of not only our country's reality and history, but certainly of humanities. And then also on the front page is Matt Gates, the loathsome Republican congressman from Florida, one of Donald Trump's most uh, ardent supporters. Turns out the Justice Department of the United States under Bill Barr, that'd be Trump's AG, opened an investigation that has snagged Gates and the question is whether he, in fact, had a sexual relationship with a 17-year-old and paid for her to travel with him, which would uh, be sex trafficking under our laws. And um, people who get prosecuted for that kind of thing um, often receive prison terms. Okay, so not surprising. And then it turns out you'll find out more about it. Uh, Gates got nabbed because originally Barr's Justice Department was looking at another um, wonderful office holder in, in Florida who, um, who was indicted and in fact is, I believe, in jail right now. 
indicted on uh, an array of charges, including sex trafficking of a child, financially supporting people in exchange for sex, and at least one of whom was an underage girl. And in investigating this guy, guess who pops up? Uh Matt Gates. The same Matt Gates, the same loathes of Matt Gates, who invited a right-wing Holocaust denier to uh, the State of the Union address, and who has uh, attended events with the Proud Boys. He, by the way, was the only member of Congress, the only member of Congress who voted against a law that gave the federal government more power to fight human trafficking. (laughs) And now here he is, potentially accused of it. And I thought, geez, I I don't know why. I was under the impression he had a thing for young boys, and I couldn't quite remember the story, but it has been been refreshed in my my ailing memory uh, by Google. Last year, do you remember, Gates all of a sudden announced to an incredulous public that he had a son. His son was named Nestor, and he was 19 years old. And Kate says, he is my son. He is not my biological son, and I have not adopted him. Which then begs the question, well, then he ain't your son, buddy. But he lives with him, and uh, since he was 12, when he came from Cuba, and Gates was dating his sister. I'm just saying, what a creepy kind of person. Okay, uh, so there's that. And Jesus, God, there's a lot of news when you don't uh, you don't pay any attention. Well, I, you don't talk about it for a while. Uh-oh, little Tony says, I agree with your son. When something like this happens, the police officer always gets off. I will be pleasantly surprised if I and your son are wrong. We all saw it. I I mean, people were begging him to get off the guy. The guy was handcuffed. He posed no danger. It was just willful. But of course, you're right. Um, History does tell us, my son and you, that this guy will not be convicted. But I took some some solace in reading that uh, those thumbnail sketches of the jury. It almost sounds as if the defense didn't find a juror that, you know, was someone they could really count on 
You know what I mean? But all it takes is one. Tis true. It must be unanimous. So we'll see. Can you imagine, by the way, the courage or just cussed stubbornness that it would take to be that juror, the one locked up in a room of other people who all are going the other way and you are preventing, you stand and remain true to what you really believe. It's one of my favorite movies, 12 Angry Men. It is an astonishing movie if you've never seen it because it is, it shows how a jury goes from just one guy on the jury saying, nah, I don't think he's guilty. This is, this is about a Hispanic kid accused of murder. I don't think he is. And everybody else is absolutely certain he is. And of course, the jury is made up of 12 white men. And it's just a fascinating, uh, fascinating and incredibly done, filled with amazing actors. Henry Fonda, the, the lead. If you have never seen it, check it out. I don't think a lot of people have the courage to stay true to what they firmly believe with in that circumstance. I really don't. I think most people fold. But that is me who has an increasingly negative view of uh, human nature. Hey, some good news. Donald Trump, I hate to mention his name, but, you know, Donald Trump convict uh, in waiting is how I like to think of him. Donald Trump has lost yet another. All he does is lose. All he does is lose. He's such a loser. The highest court in New York threw out the latest thing and said uh, to a woman who has accused him of, of well, she first accused him of sexual uh, assault on The Apprentice where she was a contestant. And then, um, and then he called her a liar. So the way she's been able to go after him is by suing him for defamation, saying, I'm not a liar. It happened. And so that case, first brought in 2017, is going to go forward. And it could be the first deposition that Trump has to sit for. He's avoided them all, but he does not have the defense he had of being the sitting president, way too busy with his golf game to be bothered with such harassments. That's now gone. The judges say this trial should go forward 
And so now we get to the part of, I guess they call that discovery, where people get deposed, questioned under oath. She is just one, of course, of a lot of women who have accused Trump of sexual uh, misbehavior, everything from, you know, groping to flat out rape. Um, And so there's that. And also he's facing two criminal investigations, one in Manhattan, where prosecutors are poring over, they got his tax records, as you know, they're poring over the tax records and they see what has been reported, but now they got the goods that he and his company inflated or manipulated the value of his properties to obtain loans under false pretenses and tax benefits, all of this against the law. The other cases in Georgia and has to do with his uh, efforts to subvert the election results uh, in the state. So uh, that might gladden your hearts. The current president, God bless his soul, is uh, due in Pittsburgh, if not now, uh, any minute. He will be unveiling his his big infrastructure uh, spending package uh, here, and he intends to uh, underwrite it with a tax increase on corporations. And, um, you know, you can hear the Republicans all right. What? What? First of all, you just say two words, raise taxes to a Republican. And they, you know, and they, they, they look like a, you know, a corseted woman in 1840, uh, you know, hearing a, an off color joke, you know, they start swooning and uh, turning ashen and drop to the floor, uh, clutching their pearls. Anyway, This is corporate tax increases, which for the staunch Republican Party is the worst kind of tax increase because it is corporate America that the Republican Party services and serves and represents. You think they represent Republican voters? Nah. Not so much. Yeah, Republican voters who are corporate executives, yes. But some poor Schlemiel kind of Republican voter somewhere in the country, not so much. But here's the interesting thing. As I was reading about it, what they're, here's what Biden is going to say. The corporate tax rate right now is 21%. And Biden says, we got to up this to 28% to pay for all of this amazing job creating and absolutely overdue work of repairing our crumbling infrastructure. And some people say, my God, he's going up to 28%. Let me remind you of something because we don't pay attention. The corporate tax rate was 35% just four years ago. So 
it doesn't even rise to where it was. It's only half back to where Biden just saying Trump, when he came in and the Republicans dropped the corporate tax rate from 35 percent to 21 percent. Biden, that's 14 points, right? Biden is saying, I'm not going to put it back to where it was, which I think he should, but what the hell. He's just putting it seven points, half. He's taking half of Trump's corporate tax break away from these ultra-rich corporations. Big deal is all I have to say. I just want to say this too about I'm changing subjects. I'm going, I'm, I'm, you know, careening around from place to place. Wait a minute. If anybody's trying to reach me, you're not getting me because I've, wait. Okay. I'm back. Um, ooh, yeah. See, you are there. I, I just got all your emails. Uh, Beth saying she agrees with my son. Oh, oh, oh geez. He'll be thrilled to hear this, by the way. Uh, Beth says, we witnessed the beating of Rodney King. Nothing. We witnessed Johnny Gamage. Nothing. We witnessed Alton Sterling. Nothing. We witnessed Eric Garner. Nothing. We witnessed Trayvon Martin. Nothing. We witnessed Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old boy. Nothing. Obviously, this list can go on and on and on, and that we know these names. Gosh. And Beth says, these are just the names I could remember off the top of my head where there was video proof. I don't think there was video proof of damage, Beth. I don't, but she says, I hope in a few years when this topic is front and center again, I don't send you an email. And it says, George Floyd, nothing. God, I hope so too. Uh, yeah. Ella says she was watching and she heard testimony that the police officer was a, yeah, he was applying intense pressure. That's what the paramedic, the fire person said who happened upon the scene and kept begging them to let her see if he was okay and they wouldn't right and she said he seemed Chauvin seemed so comfortable with all his weight on this poor man's neck cutting off his air supply that he was so comfortable and his body so sort of settled that he had his hand And Bree writes, Lynn, the city of Minneapolis thinks he will be found guilty. They already paid out $27 million in the civil case. And then Bree says, it amazes me. They have $27 million sitting around? Well, I think they have insurance. 
these police departments carry this kind of insurance, right? I don't know. I don't know. Ultimately, I'm sure it hits the taxpayers. But Bree says they should have spent the 27 mil on diversity training for their police. Where does that money come from? Okay, I, I, I think there's insurance involved, frankly, or it would it would just be, uh, you know, you couldn't do it, I think. Um, so I just want to say this about, oh, hang on, just trying to catch up with you guys. Jeez. Paul Wright, I love 12 Angry Men. It kept running through my head when I was the head juror in a wrongful death suit in the 1990s. Wow, you were. I never sat on a jury, and I would like to. I've been called many a time, but they never take me because they see me as a an influencer, right? a liberal influencer. So, uh, you know, the prosecution is always uh, going to say, uh-uh, not that, uh-uh, not her. And then I was called um, this year, I think. And for the first time I saw that my age, my advanced age allows me to say, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm just a little too infirm to spend a day waiting around only to be rejected. So I think I've I've lost my chance because they just will not take me. There's no way. Although I've seen cases in which a judge has been seated on a jury. I mean, it's rare, but it can happen. Anyway, back to Paul. He's the head juror in a wrongful death suit. And he said, so many jurors reared their ugly heads during closed door deliberations. Wow. Just like in the movie. It took us five days. Wow. But we ruled with the prosecution. When, on day one, we were ruling with the defense. Interesting. So you guys came around. Wow. I can't imagine. I mean, that is heavy-duty stuff. You have a person's life in your hands. Um. And it certainly is an experience in understanding how uh, justice uh, is not necessary. We pursue it. I mean, I know my religion says to pursue justice. I don't know that we always get it. But the pursuit of it is, uh, is a constant struggle. Okay, I do want to say that I feel, and I have nothing to go on other than my own experience and the experience of friends and and just what I'm seeing and anecdotal stuff. I really think Pennsylvania is mucking this uh, vaccine thing up, and I I, I can't be alone. Um, I think what tripped that 
tripped us up is that we have in Wolf and the health department had in their heads, we've got, I think next to Florida, the most vulnerable population of people in the country. We got so many, the percentage of old farts like me in this state is like, uh, I think a little over 20% of the population. And the, the goal of the Wolf administration was to get vaccines to that population because they were the ones most in danger of uh, severe illness and death. And, you know, that's a perfectly arguable uh, first step. But that we remain in this first, you know, there's one A, there's one B, there's one C, this first phase, we're still in it. And there's next to no other state that hasn't loosened up a little bit. Okay, they loosened a little. I think he dropped it to 55, did he? Yeah, I don't know. But the sort of niggling little, when all, uh, I keep seeing articles, seeing things on uh, the internet, local uh, apps, saying that there are, there's now more vaccine than there is demand. There was a pharmacy um, in the South Hills the other day, yesterday, or the day before, Spartan Pharmacy. They have it or had it. And I think they were really struggling to find people to get it. And they said at one point, you know, we got a thousand here. But, but so how does that get out that they have it? Somebody forwarded it to me. So this word of mouth thing, it's just insanity. I don't know. I think it's being done insanely. And uh, the Post-Gazette has a story today of uh, increasing numbers of uh, Pennsylvanians uh, going to Ohio, Western Pennsylvania, certainly, uh, heading to Ohio. You go to, oh, you can get it in Ohio. No problem. I was talking to my sister-in-law in Michigan the other day. She says people in Michigan, she lives in southern Michigan, people in Michigan are dropping down into Toledo and Ohio and getting it there. And the reason is, of course, is that Ohio tends to be a pretty red state. And there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of nincompoops there who vote for Trump and think it's a hoax or think that, uh, I don't know, they're being branded by the devil or microchipped if they get the, I don't know what the hell these idiots think. Anyway, they're, they've got vaccine there and it's going begging and Ohio has no problem giving it to Michiganders or Pennsylvanians. But when people from a state have to be going, traveling to other states to get what is also available in their state, but is being kept from them in some way, I, I just don't think we're doing this right. Wolf is muttering now that he thinks in the next two days he'll move on and broaden uh, the scope. It's too slow, too slow. Just that we're going to be knee deep in vaccine in another week. Just let 
people get at it and keep holding big, big things. So you know if you go to PNC Park, you can get it. You know if you go to the Peterson Convention Center, you can get it. You know, and you don't have to prove and you don't have to lie. People are saying, oh, I'm a smoker. People are saying, I swear my BMI is this and that. Oh, no, I do. I have diabetes. And they don't ask you to prove. It's full. It's just the whole system is crapola. I'm sorry. But the most vulnerable populations um, have had you know, unfettered opportunity here for a long time. And yet, I don't know, do you guys know of old people that still can't get it? I'll tell you where else they need to give it. They need to give it to old people's and other people's doctors. Because that is a trusted, uh, that's a trusted person. So if every doctor's office is given, you know, even 30 doses, they will get those into the arms of the people they know need. I just, I don't understand any of it. And I do think I'm not thrilled with how they did this. And it makes me wonder, too, why Biden grabbed uh, Rachel Levine, who was, you know, the head of our health uh, department, and put her in that pretty important, very important federal role. I'm not so sure that her thing and Wolf's thing was the greatest. I don't know, but I don't know. Okay. Wisconsin is in a few days about to open it up to everybody. Arkansas is going to open it up to everybody. Delaware, everybody. California, everybody. And we're still saying, I don't know. I'm sorry, guys. I don't get it tepid and tentative and just unimpressive. All I want to say. Uh, boy, I'm babbling today, but I, I do. I have all this stuff I want to get to you. Also, uh, yesterday, uh, we talked for a moment, not, uh, you know, with frivolity about Georgia, uh, Jim Crow uh, new voting laws and um, how the major corporations in Georgia were astonishingly silent as this as this noxious uh, legislation passed and how strange it was since they were so quick to sort of stand up in other political situations and say hey Georgia, don't do that. Don't do that. You know, we're Coca-Cola. We're big here. You don't want to do that. We're Delta. You don't want to do that. And they have pushed back. Well, today I see in the New York Times a full page, uh, a full page, I don't know what we call it, an ad, a full page argument being made by the country's most prominent black business leaders to their brethren in corporate suites. And this 
and they're telling them, you got to step up. You have to step up. And this is a first. It is the first time that so many powerful black men and women have organized, and they did this within a few days, have organized to call out the corporate world for failing to stand up for racial justice. Now, the effort is being led by the former CEO of American Express, whose name I'd never have known whether it's pronounced Kenneth Chenault or Kenneth Chenault, and also by the CEO of Merck, whose name is Kenneth Frazier. These are two extremely powerful black executives, obviously. And they say, there is no middle ground here. You are either for more people voting or you're for suppressing the vote. Former chief executive of Xerox, Ursula Burns, Richard Parsons, the former chair of Citigroup, and chief executive of Time Warner. These are not little people. Tony West, the chief legal officer of Uber, and they've all signed their names and put and thrown down the challenge to their white counterparts who had most of corporate America. And Kenneth Fraser said, the Georgia legislature, that's just the first one. These kinds of bills to limit voting are now in the hoppers in 43 states. And if corporate America, he says, does not stand up, these bills are going to become law in all of these states or some, maybe most, because Republicans control these legislatures. And they've noted, these black corporate leaders, that last year, companies were falling all over themselves to sign on to a pledge that said that they were in absolute opposition to any state legislation, and federal for that matter, aimed at restricting access to any kind of equal rights to the LGBTQ community, okay? And I'm telling you, it was everybody. AT&T, Facebook, Nike, Pfizer, everybody signed that. Man, they couldn't. Amazon, Google, American Airlines, Delta Airlines, Coca-Cola, they all signed on to that. And Black America notes that. Huh, well, that's interesting. The corporate community made that strong stance and backed a lot of legislation down as a result, made the strong stance for the LGBTQ community. But now, when the issue is the restriction and suppression of voting 
rights that clearly disproportionately impact and harm black people. They're not there. And so the time is now and the challenge is on to let these corporations know that they need to step up. And you do that by not buying their crap. Also, the head of the Major League Baseball Players Association has said he's looking forward to a discussion about moving the All-Star game from Atlanta. Well, a discussion's one thing, and we'll see. We'll see where that goes. So, okay, a lot of that was just uh, catch up from from yesterday. Um, okay. I just wanted to pass this on to you because. I don't know if you've ever read the book, my, I it's not the right title, but, uh, the book's called Brothers and Keepers. It is one of the more powerful memoirs I've ever read. It is set here in Pittsburgh, and the writer is a Pittsburgher, John Weidman, an extraordinary uh, author. And he wrote it about his younger brother, who I believe just this year, finally, was released from jail. He was given a life sentence when he was, what, I don't know, 19, 20, for being part of a robbery in which somebody got killed. He was not the shooter. But that didn't spare him. And the memoir is just so, you know, one brother, this, who became John Weidman. Robbie Weidman spends his life in jail. John Weidman, both grow up in Homewood. And then John Weidman gets out. And he gets out by a scholarship, academic scholarship to the University of Pennsylvania. Not Penn State, better, the University of Pennsylvania. And from there, he went to Oxford on a Rhodes scholarship. And he has a new book out. And I, the reason I was reminded of this is because I read a book review in the New York Times of it. And um, and because he came of age in Homewood and lived as a young black man in Pittsburgh, like August Wilson, his work gives 
voice to that experience and populates the imagination with the people in those communities, those black communities, the Hill and Homewood. And his most recent books, it really, if you're looking for things to read, is You Make Me Love You. That's the most recent. And it's short stories that he has written in the last 40 years. He's approaching 80 now. I had the uh, pleasure of meeting him and, and, uh, and interviewing him on my show uh, in the 80s when Brothers and Keepers came out. And the, the reviewer in this book, I'll just read one little thing he says, okay. Pittsburgh, this is how the New York Times review starts out, Pittsburgh. What a generator of loneliness and tumult. Its predominantly African-American Hill District was the forcing ground of the playwright August Wilson, who paid such tender and respectful attention to the lives there. The indispensable John Edgar Weidman was raised not far away, farther east in the city's Homewood neighborhood. By the time Weidman was a young man, Homewood was pockmarked with burned out stores and bent parking meters. He compares the houses. So many of these stories, you know, give you these pictures of communities that we know, some of us better than others, obviously. He compares the houses to rotten teeth. There's a quote from one of the stories. Somebody should make a deep ditch out of Homewood Avenue. Just go on and push all those row houses and board the storefronts into the hole. Just bury it, bury it all. So I just wanted to note that the Pittsburgh's black community has taken it on the chin throughout its history and has offered up some of the greatest artistry, music, plays, books, drama, design, that this city has ever known. And the reviewer points out that even though Weidman, you know, he doesn't live here anymore, he, he says no matter where in any of these stories, the author's mind seems turned like a weathercock toward Homewood. And then he just like talks about the things, a black boy growing up. And you have to believe that, you know, Weidman's always saying, these are not all, you know, my experiences, but 
plenty of them are. Right. I'm thinking of another uh, current uh, black Pittsburgh writer, Damon Young, who's also been on this program and who I know a little bit more than I certainly I've interviewed all of August Wilson, this guy, but, but Damon, I know more. And he, he too, and he has chosen to stay in Pittsburgh, even though he, he sees such, such racism here. And so Weidman in one of the stories says, just these images that pop up in his stories. A picture of a little boy, a young boy, eating scrambled eggs in front of the white family that his grandmother cooks and cleans for. He's stuck, they're looking at him. He's eating these eggs and he is enraged to be on display. His sensitive heart scalded and yet he is determined not to disappoint anybody, not to spill food or get my mouth greasy or talk like a little ignorant piccaninny. Now think of a little boy with that burden sitting in front of a plate of scrambled eggs. And in another story, the person narrating it says, I was too scared to enjoy watermelon, too self-conscious. So I just let people rob me of that simple pleasure. Isn't that something? Or not? Uh, oh God, why does this always happen? So I got five minutes, but do I have a five minute kind of a thing to talk about? Probably not. You know what I found myself doing? You know what I found myself doing the other day? I, I, I was dealing with my computer and I kept popping, coming on to stuff that I had written for various speeches I gave or, or op-eds I'd been asked to write, or even letters. I came upon like two letters I wrote on various people's birthdays that were so, I must say, later I look back, I think, geez, <laughs> that, was, that was good. I'm going to write, you know what I'm going to do in the five minutes? I'm going to read you one that I wrote. And this, when did the Steelers and the Packers play in the Super Bowl? When was that? Most recently. Mm -hmm. Because I was asked by both the Post-Gazette and City Paper to write something about it. And I can't remember who I wrote it for. I think it might have been the PG. Bigger circulation, I thought. Um, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry, city people. Um, 
So let me, can I read this to you? Because I, I read it and I thought, gee, that's a pretty good, okay, I'm going to do it. Because I'm always flying off the cuff with you guys. Here's me writing so that I actually have some ability to be thoughtful in what I choose to say. And I think the voice sounds a little different. Okay, here we go. Here's something I can say with absolute certainty. The team I love is going to win the Super Bowl. And here's another thing I can say with absolute certainty. The team I love is going to lose the Super Bowl. And that's the problem. I have dreaded a Steeler Packers Super Bowl since I moved here from Wisconsin 30 years ago. When both teams were having good seasons, I take to making lame jokes about checking into Western Psych to watch the game. But year after year, I was spared. Year after year, until now. And wouldn't you know, this year I'd actually relaxed. The Packers were erratic, suffering humiliating losses to the likes of the Detroit Lions. But then late in the season, with their starting quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, sitting on the bench the entire game with a concussion, I saw the Packers scare the bejesus out of Tom Brady and the Patriots in Boston before losing by a field goal in the last 10 seconds. Uh-oh, I remember thinking. Better check the day rates at Western Psych. I'm not just any cheesehead, either. I was born and raised in Green Bay to a family that owned season tickets for 70 plus years. I can remember going to Packer games in the 50s with my dad in rickety old city stadium before Lambeau Field was even built. And one of my main criteria for choosing a college when I graduated from Green Bay East High School at the height of the Lombardi era was that it had to be close enough so I could get home for Packer games. I ended up going to Northwestern University because I could take the Chicago and Northwestern Railway straight up the western shore of Lake Michigan and be home in four hours. Green Bay, my hometown, is like a tiny Pittsburgh. Blue collar, unpretentious, ethnic, and Catholic. The population of the town when I grew up there was a mere 55,000 people. And the tallest building in town was, and still is, <laughs> only 10 stories tall. It's classic small town Midwestern America. I remember in the 60s going bowling at the Kegler's Club on a double date with Lombardi's only daughter, Susan, Jack Singleton and Tom Lutze, and Tom is now on the Packers board, the team's governing body. You see, besides being one of the oldest NFL franchises, the Packers also have the distinction of being the only NFL team with owner. The team is owned by the people of the town, including me and my siblings, and governed by an unpaid board made up mostly of local yokels elected by the shareholders. Corporate meetings were held snow or shine in Lambeau Field so all his owners could squeeze in. And here is the best part. If the team should ever be sold, the proceeds 
would go to a local American Legion Hall. Now, how are you supposed to not love a team like that? When Vince Lombardi came to Green Bay in 1959, the only people of color in town were the local Native Americans, the Oneidas, and one black family, the Hammers, who lived down by the Fox River and whose son Enos was in my class. Lombardi actually hired a barber every few weeks to come up from Milwaukee so his black players could get a haircut. And shortly after his arrival, he turned to my father for help in getting an open housing ordinance passed so that his black players could actually find homes in the blinding whiteness of the frozen tundra. And then last year, my 88-year-old mother, that tells you it's 10 years ago, my 88-year-old my mother was on the St. Norbert College campus where the Packers used to practice to attend a lecture by a Chinese dissident. She slipped on some ice and went face down on the sidewalk. She was helped to her feet by a stranger who turned out to be the president of the Packers, Mark Murphy. Over her protestations, the Packer president drove my mom home, and then because one of her front teeth was clearly askew, he insisted she call her dentist, who despite the fact that his office had long closed for the night, said he'd jump in his car and meet them there in a few minutes. And so the Packer president, who my mom never met before, drove her over to her dentist. I tell you all this because I want you to understand that not loving Green Bay is like not loving a Norman Rockwell painting. So there you have it, my Super Bowl predicament. I spent the first half of my life loving the Packers and only the Packers, but in the second half, I made room in my heart for the Steelers as well. It's been a threesome that has kept me warm through many a cold winter, and I know it will survive Sunday. I just hope it's a great game, worthy of these two wonderful and storied franchises. And this much I know, one of the teams I love is going to win, and one of the teams I love is going to lose. Pass the nachos. Well, my recollection serves me. The Packers won, and it wasn't a great game, right? It was an awful game, wasn't it? I can't remember. Anyway, I guess that's it. So. Um, Ooh, I thank you. Thank you for letting me relive that. And um, I guess I'll see you guys tomorrow, okay? Brr. Temperature dropping. Stay warm. Cover up any of those flowers you planted like an idiot, like me. And um, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Bye. Lynn Cullen Live. Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.